Broadcasting live from the KVXL studios at Liberty Baptist Church in Las Vegas. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. The Frittle Show with Crystal Heath. I've said that we must be cautious in claiming God is on our side. I think the real question we must answer is, are we on his side? Faith, family, freedom. For me, it's very simple. I think we've got to... We've got to get the country back on the right track with the most inspiring agenda. A voice in the desert. Now, here's Crystal Heath. I'd like to have you describe in any way you want to what judicial independence means and specifically tell us whether you'd have any trouble ruling against a president who appointed you. Turn your microphone. I'm sorry. That's a softball, Mr. Chairman. I have no difficulty ruling against or for any party other than based on what the law and the facts in the particular case require. And I'm heartened uh, by the support I have received from people who recognize that there's no such thing as a Republican judge or a Democratic judge. We just have judges in this country. When I think of what judicial independence means, I think of Byron White. That's who I think of. I think of his fierce, rugged independence. He did his, he said, I have a job. People asked him what his judicial philosophy was. I give the same answer. I decide cases. It's a pretty good philosophy for a judge. I listen to the arguments made. I read the briefs that are put to me. I listen to my colleagues carefully. And I listen to the lawyers in the well. And this experience has reminded me what it's like to be a lawyer in the well. It's a lot easier to ask the questions I find as a judge than it is to have all the answers as the lawyer in the well. So I I take the process, the judicial process, very seriously. And I go through it step by step and keeping an open mind through the entire process as best I humanly can. And I leave all the other stuff at home. And I make a decision based on the facts and the law. Those are some of the things judicial independence means to me. Okay, so that was just a very brief clip from what went on for 10 hours yesterday. 10 hours, Judge Neil Gorsuch stood before uh, the Senate confirmation uh, panel and just they grilled him over and over and over. And essentially what I found was particularly from those uh, who were uh, not of the same political persuasion as the president or basically the Democrats all essentially presented the same question and phrased it in a different way. And the question that they seemed to keep asking was, you, you followed the law in this instance. Can you explain to us why you followed the law? And I, and I watch this and I'm going, what? what? Isn't that, that's like what he's supposed to do? Isn't that what we're all supposed to? Uh... But it's, <laughs> Democrats in, in their continual grilling of Gorsuch, I don't think they're doing themselves any favors. Because what's happening here is if you watch these hearings at all, and you watch how Gorsuch responds to all of these questions with um, 
with just this un uncanny amount of patience and insight and wisdom and humility. It's really I I am impressed thus far. If you just, just you can watch any of the highlights, even the highlights that liberal media tries to pull out of the hearings to make him look bad, they can't do it. You can't do it. He's he's been so good and so consistent and just so it's I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you sit there for 10 hours and listen to these absurd questions and still manage to maintain your composure completely, give brilliant legal answers and and come off looking really pretty incredible in my opinion. Now I don't agree. I I again, the only concern that I have had with him um well there was a couple but the the main one is that I I don't I don't think he's going to I think if the opportunity to overturn Roe v. Wade was presented to him, he would not do that. Um and that that troubles me. But beyond that, he is he is appearing to be what uh what may turn out to be a worthy successor uh to Scalia. But we shall see. Some highlights from day two. Senator Patrick Leahy, Democrat from Vermont, pressed Judge Gorsuch on a central question. He said, can you hold President Trump accountable? To which Judge Gorsuch replied, no man is above the law. Judge Gorsuch said no one from the White House had asked him to make any commitments on legal issues. He said, I have offered no promises on how I'd rule on any case. He didn't. He wouldn't talk about how he would specifically rule on many issues including abortion, gun rights, and, and the travel ban, and he shouldn't. Because you, you can't just make a blanket statement on things like this because you have to look at each individual case as it is presented and make a determination based on what is brought at that time and uh, based on precedent and based on um, the Constitution, obviously. So you, you can't just be like, so if someone were to ask you about this, well, no, what are the facts in the case? So I think that's good. Um, let's see, what are some other highlights here? Uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein, Democrat from California, asked Judge Gorsuch about his participation in defending uh, the George W. Bush administration's policies in the war on terror, like torture, when the judge was a Justice Department official in 2005. Judge Gorsuch said he was a lawyer and not a policymaker at the time. Senator Lindsey Graham, Republican of South Carolina, said he was comforted that President Trump had chosen Judge Gorsuch. He said, quite frankly, I was worried about who he'd picked, who he'd pick maybe somebody on TV. And the fun will continue today. This, I, I don't know how you can help but respect him if you watch him go through this, any of it. But most especially, if you watch when the Democrats have the opportunity and especially with his previous cases, like it just amazed me how many of them, essentially over and over and over and over, they would bring up previous rulings and previous cases, and they'd be like, so in this instance, you judged, made a determination upon the law, rather than feelings. Can you explain to us why exactly you did that? And I just sat there shaking my head, like, that's exactly what a judge is supposed to do. Anyway, 
Let's move on to one of my favorite topics. Oh, by the way, in case you didn't know, you're listening to The Frittle Show on KVXL, 101.1 FM, Experience Liberty Radio. I'm Crystal Heath, and uh, we are talking about all kinds of things today. All kinds of things today. You should join us for church tonight since it's Wednesday. Church will be at 7 o'clock. We'd love to have you here. 6501 West Lake Mead Boulevard if you are in Las Vegas. All right. One of my favorite people is in the news again, if you haven't figured it out by now, is Tim Tebow. And it is official. Tim Tebow is a minor league player. And you're like, no, he's been a minor league player. Well, yes and no. Now he is officially with the Mets Class A team, the Fireflies, in Columbia, South Carolina, is where Tim Tebow will begin his professional baseball career in the minor leagues. Newsday broke the story. Um, Let's see here. Tim Tebow is headed to the Mets' low Class A affiliate in Columbia, South Carolina. As first reported by Newsday, Tebow's baseball odyssey will continue with the Fireflies beginning on April 6th. It is a full-season circuit, and Tebow's toughest challenge thus far in his attempt to transform himself from a quarterback to a corner outfielder. It's not about worrying about the level of competition and failing at it, he said. This is... This is a game where mentally you have to be prepared to handle failure. If you fail 70% of the time, you're one of the best players in the game, and you have to be able to handle it mentally. The Mets have been consistent in saying that Tebow's development is tied to playing in as many games as possible. Uh, Let's skip down a little bit. Uh, Before signing a minor league deal with the Mets, Tebow, age 29, hadn't played baseball since high school. The rest has shown with late swings and at least one misread of a routine fly ball in left field. But he has made hard contact and even made a diving catch in right field. (laughs) That... That sentence is just cruelly phrased, in my opinion. He's obviously very athletic, and he has adapted very quickly, said, uh, let's see, who is this? Sandy Alderson, general manager of the Arizona Fall League. His approach at the plate is very solid. He doesn't chase pitches. People might say his swing is a little long, but the swing is professional. When he's made contact, it's often been hard contact. Defensively, it's still a work in progress, but it's adequate. He's made some nice plays, again demonstrating the athleticism that everybody's seen he has. Since a rough start in the Arizona Fall League, Alderson said Tebow has improved pretty dramatically. And the other thing is he's fit in well with his teammates. There hasn't been much in the way of criticism or jealousy or anything of that sort from his teammates. Again, that kind of goes to the person that he is. With Tebow ticketed for his highest level of play yet, Alderson again bristled at the notion of the former Heisman Trophy winner being little more than a publicity stunt, one that takes away a roster spot for a worthy minor leaguer. That's such a bogus argument, Alderson said. We've got lots of room for lots of players at lots of different levels. The fact that he's starting at Columbia, he's really not taking anybody's spot. By the way, we have lots of players in our organization who are just that— organizational players. Not every player that we have is a top prospect whose opportunity is being curtailed by Tim Tebow or anybody else. It's unclear how many more games Tebow will play with the Mets during Major League Spring training or whether he'll play right or left for Columbia. But he will be playing every day and doing so soon, much of the reason he will be in the South Atlantic League rather than with short season Brooklyn, which doesn't begin play until later in the summer. It's not like you're 
It's not like you go into something ever being afraid of it, Tebow said. You go into it respecting it, but also working and excited about the challenge and the opportunity. And I'm excited about the challenge and the opportunity to hear about Tim Tebow every day. Some of you are like, no, make it stop. Well, you you just haters. That's all I have to say about that. <laughs> Again, I, I, I don't know how to explain this to those of you in Las Vegas if you don't get it. This is this is good news for us because if Tebow does well in with the Fireflies in Class A, then he can go to Double A, and then guess where Triple A Mets affiliate is? Are you trekking with me right now? Triple A Mets affiliate is in Las Vegas. All right, that was Chris Tomlin with Whom Shall I Fear? You're listening to 101.1 FM Experience Liberty Radio on KVXL here in Las Vegas. By the way, the Fireflies ticket sales, they just went through the roof with Tim Tebow headed to uh, to Columbia there. And Mom, if you're listening, you can tell Jeremiah and Jesse that he's going to be in Greenville. I just looked at their schedule. He's going to be in Greenville at the end of August for three days in a row. So I'm just saying they should probably... You know, go to a game and get me an interview and stuff. Or not? A, well, yeah, that would be cool. I, but an autograph was what I was going for. Okay, so remember that White House fence jumper? We're now learning that he was on the White House grounds for more than 15 minutes. That's crazy. The Secret Service announced last week, or last weekend... Oh, sometime after I had already wrapped up recording for last week. But the guy that jumped the fence of the White House, we now know that he jumped up onto the fence, did a little demonstration on top of the fence. No one stops him. He gets onto the White House grounds and just wanders around the White House grounds for over 15 minutes. This dude climbed a five-foot fence and an eight-foot gate and then hopped a three-and-a-half-foot, another three-and-a-half-foot fence. And the Secret Service didn't know where he was. This guy even managed to rattle a door handle at the South Portico entrance to the White House, although he didn't make it inside, but he made it to the White House. Jason Chaffetz is the House Oversight Chairman, and he said, We spend billions of dollars on personnel and dogs and technologies and fences and undercover undercover people and video surveillance, and yet the person is able to get up close to the White House and spend 17 minutes before he's apprehended. That's unbelievable. The Secret Service issued a statement that said they'd taken immediate steps Uh, including additional posts, technology enhancements, and response protocols, and that the men and women of the Secret Service are extremely disappointed and angry in how the events of March 10th transpired. So apparently the guy that jumped fence, his name is Jonathan Tran. He set off several alarms but avoided other sensors, and the response to the alarm was not cool. This guy is 26 years old. Carrying a backpack, sets off alarms, gets to the White House door, rattles the door handle. Before he was discovered, just steps away from another door, from a main door. 
<laughs> that's not cool. In fact, to me, it is just unfathomable. I don't know if you, if you've ever toured the White House, but uh, I've done the I've done the regular public tour and the quote I've got a friend tour that shows uh, the Oval Office and press area. The building itself, by the way, the White House, it's not overly impressive. The thing I most remember about being in the hallway outside the Oval Office is that the ceilings are incredibly low. Like it felt very confining. Uh, inside the Oval Office, obviously, is different, but outside the Oval Office in that hallway area. It's not, it's not like the stately mansions of England. Like it's very, it's, it's obviously, it's a big house with office buildings, but it's not grandiose. It's really not. It's very, I thought it was perfect for America. Because it's not a, it's not a mansion for a king. But anyway, having been there, I, I can't imagine this. Because generally speaking, you get anywhere near the outside of the White House fence and you have like three people instantly, excuse me, ma'am, please back away from the fence. And you're like, I'm sorry. I mean, there's certain areas of the fence where you can stick your camera up close and take a picture, but there's other areas. I'm telling you, they're right there. I've, I've gotten the, excuse me, ma'am, please step away. More than, more than once. Like you, they've got snipers in the trees on the White House lawn for crying out loud. So explain to me how on earth this punk not only jumps the fence, he dances on top of the fence, then wanders the grounds for seventeen minutes unscathed. I mean, that's just scary. I don't care what you think of the president's politics. No one should be that close to the president. That hasn't been properly vetted and whose backpack hasn't been thoroughly searched. The Secret Service really needs to step it up here. Because then on top of that, and this is really why I wanted to mention that story, because right on the heels of the White House fence jumper, we learn that, uh, I believe, did this happen in New York? Yeah, this in Brooklyn. Alright, so in Brooklyn, there is a vehicle parked... A Secret Service agent's car is parked in Brooklyn this past Friday. And there's a laptop in there that contained floor plans for Trump Tower, information about the Hillary Clinton email investigation, and other national security information. This laptop is left in this vehicle. It was stolen. Highly, highly sensitive data. He also, the dude that that robbed this vehicle also took sensitive documents an access key card coins a black zippered bag with secret service insignia on it and lapel pins from various assignments including ones involving president trump the clinton campaign the united nations general assembly and the pope's visit to new york but that's not all he also took an agency issued radio And, just to make it a little bit worse, the sensitive information on the laptop cannot be remotely erased. <sighs> um, yeah, I believe they found... Um, they found several 
of the items. I don't believe they found the laptop yet. But the, 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 the thief ditched some of the stuff and they found the stuff that he just dumped. But this isn't good. You know, Dan Bongino, I don't know if you know him, he's a talk show host now, but he's a former Secret Service agent. And he's done a number of interviews on the topic, well, on both these news stories. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he talks about how since the Secret Service, is very interesting, um, he says that once the Secret Service was put under Homeland Security, there's been a staffing shortage and a financial shortage. And he is going around saying outright, that the president is not safe in the White House. And not just since Trump came into office. He's been saying these problems have existed for years. And that's just really not good. Hopefully the Secret Service can get these things turned around ASAP. But let's stay, let's stay with the Trumps for a minute. Let's talk about how Ivanka Trump's brand is being sued for being unfairly successful. I wish I was joking, but I'm not. This is from Yahoo.com. Ivanka Trump sued over, quote, unfair competition, unquote. The Ivanka Trump brand has had a tumultuous start to 2017, and things do not seem to be getting better. The clothing, clothing and accessories brand founded by President Donald Trump's daughter Ivanka Trump has been sued by a San Francisco-based retailer over unfair competition. According to the class action lawsuit filed by Modern Appealing Clothing in San Francisco Superior Court on Thursday, by the way, your name perhaps is lacking, Modern Appealing Clothing? Hmm. Like, so where'd you get that? Oh, modern. It's modern appealing clothing. <laughs> no. Uh, <clears throat> uh, so the class action lawsuit says that the company Ivanka Trump Marks LLC was able to gain an unfair advantage over others from quote Donald J. Trump being the president of the United States and from Ivanka Trump and her husband Jared working for the president of the United States. All right, so let me pause here just to interject that that would be like saying, this would be like an author suing President George W. Bush because he has an unfair advantage from having been president to now be publishing books because people would be more likely to buy them because he has been president. Well, that's just silly. That's, that's, they were the same thing with somebody like Tim Tebow. That'd be like a, 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 another book publisher suing Tim Tebow because he has an unfair advantage in book selling because he's Tim Tebow. No, it's just silly. But let's get back to this article. And then I'll talk more about the silliness. Uh, in February, department store chain Nordstrom announced that it was dropping Ivanka's brand over concerns regarding poor product sales. A number of other retailers followed suit. However, many... Uh, you know, Trump went on Twitter to defend his daughter uh, after Nordstrom dumped her line, calling out Nordstrom for having acted in an unfair manner. Kellyanne Conway, counselor to the president, went on Fox News and urged people to, quote, go buy Ivanka's stuff, unquote, which earned her a reprimand from the Office of Government Ethics. The lawsuit says that Ivanka's company got boost got a boost in sales because of the publicity provided by the president and his counselor. Hmm. E-commerce aggregator List backed the boost in sales for the brand, and in a report published by Refinery29, the brand's sales registered an increase of 346% from January to February, and an increase of 557% in February compared to the same month last year. 
the California retailer in the lawsuit, this is my favorite part, is also suing the Ivanka Trump brand over conspiracy conspiracy and asked for temporary and permanent restraining orders barring the company from continuing to compete at an unfair advantage in California. Okay. It added, quote, As a result of their unlawful acts, defendants have reaped and continue to reap unfair benefits and illegal profits at the expense of of plaintiff modern appealing clothing and the class it seeks to represent. Okay. Let's look at a couple different aspects of this here. First, look. As far as Trump tweeting when Nordstrom dumped uh, Ivanka. Was that perhaps the wisest thing for him to do? Probably not. But he was defending his daughter. Yes, he is the President of the United States, but he is allowed to defend his family. And he didn't say, everybody go buy Ivanka's stuff. Now, with Kellyanne Conway, that's different. You cannot be in a position like the one that she has and tell people that they need to buy a certain thing. Because that is what we call unethical. So if this modern appealing clothing company feels that the reason they are not successful is based more upon... Donald Trump's presidency than it is upon perhaps even just their name and branding. Um, What they should be doing, if they wanted to sue someone, then you would sue Kellyanne Conway if you think that she has given an unfair advantage to Ivanka. But Ivanka Trump did not have anything to do with people talking about her on the news. That we know of. Uh, we don't. We have no evidence whatsoever that suggests that Ivanka Trump was like, Hey, Kellyanne, when you're on Fox News today, will you tell everyone to buy my stuff? And I think if you see Ivanka at all, you probably recognize that she likely didn't do that. So basically what they're doing is they're suing Ivanka Trump because she's successful. Which is just bogus. And... Uh, What's also not being recognized is that all these lefties and Nordstrom and everything else, they boycotted her brand, and then she has blockbuster sales. Do you think the two might be related? Um, yes. I don't think that Ivanka Trump's clothing line has exploded because Trump became president. Yes, I'm sure that had that has benefited her to a degree, but in my completely unprovable opinion similar to the completely unprovable uh, bias of modern appealing clothing company, my opinion is that more people reacted to her clothing line getting dropped by organizations such as Nordstrom and said, yeah, you know what, take this liberal elitist, and they went and bought her stuff that they may not have bought otherwise. I think more people bought her things due to that than simply because her father was president. I mean, I don't know about you, but generally speaking, the clothing that I buy has absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with who is sitting in the Oval Office. It usually has to do with whether or not I like the clothing. 
So could Ivanka's success have been affected by Conway? Yeah, I'm, it could have. And it probably was to a degree. But I don't think that Kellyanne Conway was responsible for 577% growth. More people are aware, probably, of her clothing line now that Trump is president. But again, that is not her fault. She is not president, and if she was... Okay, there's just so many... So many things I want to say. You can't just be like, you're doing so well, I'm going to sue you. Because I can't compete because you're famous. That's not how it works. I mean, it's just silly. It would be, this is comparable, all right? Modern appealing clothing suing Ivanka Trump for being successful because her father is in office, and basically they're suing her because she has a name and so they can't compete with her. That would be like little old me sitting here in our in our small yet dynamic and wonderfully amazing radio station, which has a limited reach in only Las Vegas. That would be like me Suing Sean Hannity because he has an unfair advantage in the world of radio because he's on air in every market and he's famous and so it's not fair because I can't compete with Sean Hannity because people know who he is and people don't know who I am. So I'm going to sue him because he is somehow making me less successful. See how silly that is? It's just... (sighs) We've reached a point... Where we no longer have the ability to think logically. Rather than accepting our shortcomings and working to make ourselves or our companies or our organizations better, the tendency in our culture has become, let me step on the other guy to try and get myself up. Rather than me climb the ladder, let me just stand on top of you. And it seems that this is what is happening with modern appealing clothing company suing Ivanka Trump. It's, it's just silly. We're going to take a break. When we get back, we are going to talk about the Stamp Act. Don't go away. It is 1765. March 22nd, 1765, 252 years ago today, the British Parliament has convened and determined that they need a 10,000-member force, military force, to defend the Appalachian Mountains in the American colonies. And then without consulting any of the colonial legislative bodies, Parliament enforces a Stamp Act, which is essentially a tax of really very minimal cost, but which had a huge impact on all of world history. So what happens is they pass this Stamp Act, and it's basically the king is literally requiring his stamp of approval on everything that the colonists are using to spread information of any kind. Because the spoken word, besides the spoken word, rather, if, if, if you're in 1765 and you want to communicate something with someone, you're either writing it down using paper of some variety, but it's paper, or you're talking to them. You don't have Facebook or Twitter or email or anything like that. It was paper. 
So now the colonists' only means of communication, of teaching, of learning, of educating, it has to be approved by the king in the form of a tax. And, by the way, it included Bibles. Bibles had to have a stamp. Now, the colonists had, in, in the year prior and earlier in 1765, they had just been struck with three major taxes. There was the Sugar Act, which levied duties on imports of textiles, wines, coffees, and sugar. There was the Currency Act of 1764, which caused a major decline in the value of paper money that was used in the colonies. And then there was the Quartering Act of 1765, which required the colonists to provide food and lodging to British troops. So then Parliament goes ahead and they pass the Stamp Act, which levied a direct tax on all materials printed for commercial and legal use in the colonies, from newspapers and pamphlets to playing cards and and dice and Bibles. And so they pass the Stamp Act, and the colonists are like, absolutely no. This, This is where, this is the straw that broke the camel's back, if you will. This is when the thought of taxation without representation began to become popular in the colonies. George Washington, the father of our nation, had this to say. He said, The Stamp Act imposed on the colonies by the Parliament of Great Britain is an ill-judged measure. Parliament has no right to put its hands into our pockets without our consent. So the early American colonists, they'd put up with quartering British troops. They'd put up with the Sugar Act. They'd put up with the Currency Act. But when it came to the Stamp Act... They weren't happy. And Washington's sentiments were echoed throughout the colonies. And perhaps its most vocal opponent was found in one Patrick Henry. Now, Patrick Henry is probably most remembered today for his Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death speech. But it was his case presented in opposition to the Stamp Act that skyrocketed him to the forefront of American politics at this time. Because it was Patrick Henry who stood up in the Virginia House of Burgess and presented his case against the Stamp Act. Redhill.org says, although celebrated for his liberty or death speech at St. John's Church in Richmond on March 23, 1775, Patrick Henry probably regarded his Stamp Act resolutions as a greater contribution to American independence. In the Parsons Cause of 1763, Henry's address to the jury had foreshadowed his emergence as a popular defender of the rights of colonial Americans. Two years later, by his vigorous opposition to the Stamp Act, Henry had extended his influence beyond Virginia as a powerful voice against Britain's attempt to impose taxation on the American colonies. Attacking the Stamp Act in a heated debate in the House of Burgess in 1765, Henry hurled defiance at Parliament. Timid soldier blanched as he compared George III to Julius Caesar and Charles I, but Henry responded that the king might profit by their example. Patrick Henry had written seven resolutions, each more radical than the next. He introduced five resolutions during the debate in the House of Burgesses. The fifth was adopted by a margin of only one vote. The next day, under pressure from the governor and the council, the House rescinded Henry's fifth resolution and had it erased from the official journal. 
Virginia's royal governor, Francis Fajler, even prevented the publication of the four resolutions in the Virginia Gazette. Despite the attempt to suppress news of the legislature's denunciation of the Stamp Act, within a few weeks, version of all seven of Henry's resolutions were published in other colonies. As printed in Maryland, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, and others, Henry's resolve articulated the principles of American rejection of parliamentary authority. And as a result, Henry's contemporaries recognized him as, quote, the man who gave the first impulse to the, to the revolution, unquote. The importance that Henry attached to his Stamp Act resolutions is evident from the message he left for posterity, along with his last will and testament. He said, quote, The alarm spread throughout America with astonishing quickness, and the great point of resistance to British taxation was universally established in the colonies. This brought on the war, which finally separated the two countries and gave independence to ours. Thus it was the Stamp Act which proved to be the touchstone for certain self-evident truths which we would come to embody as a nation and the individual rights of life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness because of what happened in Parliament today, 252 years ago. Oh, and a fun fact, on the back of his Stamp Act resolves, Patrick Henry wrote this, and you've probably heard this quote before, but you may not have known it was on the Stamp Act. Well, on the back he wrote this. Righteousness alone can exalt them as a nation. Reader, whoever thou art, remember this, and in thy sphere practice virtue thyself and encourage it in others. See, today we, we don't have to stand against the Stamp Act with Patrick Henry, but what he wrote on the back of those resolves still applies to us. Whoever you are, young or old, rich or poor, regardless of color or creed, whoever you are. Remember this. Remember to be virtuous and encourage others to be likewise. Because ultimately, it's not about whether Neil Gorsuch is on the Supreme Court or Donald Trump is in the White House. What exalts a nation, what makes a nation great, is the righteousness of its people. America has been great because Americans have been good. But if Americans cease to be good, if we lose our primary responsibility, if we lose focus, rather, of our primary responsibility as citizens to be individually virtuous and raise children of principle and live as families of character, if we fail to do that, then it won't matter who sits in the Oval Office or in the Supreme Court because without righteous citizens, a nation will ultimately crumble. And the only way to individual righteousness is through Jesus Christ because in ourselves there's nothing good. Without Jesus... All hope is lost for us as individuals, for our country, for the world. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And it is through Jesus Christ, through the working of his Holy Spirit, that we are able to demonstrate the virtue of which Patrick Henry wrote on the back of the Stamp Act. And that's all the time we have left for today. I hope you'll join us for church tonight at 7 p.m. here at 6501 West Lake Mead Boulevard in Las Vegas. If you're outside of Las Vegas, you can stream our service online. Just go to experienceliberty.com and click on our live stream. Or you can like us on Facebook at Liberty Baptist Church of Las Vegas. And uh, we Facebook Live our services as well so you can uh, watch there. We'd love to have you with us, though. If you are in the city, come join us. Come join us. We'll be back tomorrow, same time. 
Same place. Hope you have a fantastic day. We're going to go out with Jesus, only Jesus.